Amen. Church, it is so good to be with you today. Beautiful day outside, but even more beautiful people indoors. It's so good to see you all. It's a highlight of my week every week to get to worship with you, um, especially in person, but also those of you online. Glad to have you with us, joining us from all over Kentucky, all over the U.S., and even some other places in the world. Uh, before we get into our message today, I want to draw your attention to the handout you received on your way in. Uh, you should have gotten one of these. If you did not, you can pick one up after the service on your way out. Um, or we have a digital copy at okalona.org slash events. I think it's slash events. Um, we might have, it might be a different uh, spot there. Anyway, it's online. Um, and uh, for those of you joining us online, there's a button there for you to click right now. And you can access this same spot. Because summer is right around the corner from us. And that means... For most of us, relaxation and vacation are on our minds. It was always that way when we were kids, and I think most of us have never really grown out of that rhythm that when summertime comes up, even if we're still working, we're wishing we were relaxing. We're wishing we were on vacation. A lot of summer vacations coming up. And we want you to enjoy those. But one thing we don't ever want to do is relax in our pursuit of Jesus or take a vacation from our faith. So this summer, we're providing some opportunities for you. We're calling it the Summer Surge to help you stay engaged with the life of OCC throughout the summer. We got a lot of stuff in here. I'm just going to point out a few of those things for you. Um, one of the most important things that I want to draw your attention to is on the top of the second page, there's a spot there that uh, says connecting online. And so as you travel this summer, make sure you stay connected with us. There's a way for you to stay connected with the life of the church even when you're gone. And I love that each week we have people who can stay connected with the church and engage with us on Sunday even if they have to stay at home for medical reasons or they're shut in at the hospital traveling for business. But it's always fun too to see people who are joining us from their cabin, from the beach, on vacation, from Disney. I feel like I need to preach on location more often whenever I see that. But I love how people join us from all over the place. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. If you're traveling, you can engage with us even when you travel. Now, I want to encourage you, don't just watch and observe, but engage. Actually connect. Jump into the chat space, at least at the beginning and the end of the service. View it like your online lobby when you're with us. And utilize the chat features there to engage with the host and to participate in the service. A couple other things that you'll notice as you read through this, and it's by date, um, these things are listed as you look through there. You'll see that there's a whole lot this summer going on for families. And we always want to encourage families to connect with our family ministries, our students and our kids ministries. Because of all the summer activities that you can participate in, make connecting with church and going to things like White Mills Church Camp for our high school kids, participating in CIY Move. Make those the top priorities for your students and your kids during the summer. If you're connected with any of our young people, Make sure that you are getting them connected to these events over the summer. There's events for you to do as a family as well as things for them to do just as kids. And here's the deal. We want to come alongside you. We want to equip you. We want to partner with you. But we only get your kid just a little bit of the time, an hour here and there. We want to train you to be the primary disciple maker of your children. And so that's the goal for all those things. So make sure you stay connected to that. Now, here's some. I'm going to ask everybody. Go ahead and pull out your phone. Like, yep, go ahead, do it. Like, grab your phone, 
Pull your phone up. Then open your phone up and get on your calendar app. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, open up your phone, go to the calendar app, and put some of these things in your calendar right now. I'm going to give you a couple that you need to include in your calendar. The first one is that we have a meal packing day coming up on June 11th. You've already heard a little bit about that. You saw the video for it. We're going to be sending meals to Ukraine, to Turkey, to Syria, and to Honduras, places that uh, there's just a significant food shortage, whether they've been ravaged by uh poverty in their country or wartime or whatever's going on. We want to help them. And there's a few different ways you can participate. You can pay for the meals. You can show up and actually pack the meals on that day. Or you can do both. And we encourage all of you to do both. You can do something. Each meal only costs about 33 cents. Um, and so you can provide a few meals in a day for just a little bit of money. Um, so 10 bucks goes pretty far in feeding somebody for a month. So we encourage you to do that. Now, typically what happens is we have more people willing to serve than what we actually have money to provide the meals. So the more meals you provide, the more we're going to be able to pack on June 11th. So we encourage you to do both of those. Our goal is to hit 50,000 meals. Honestly, I think we may have set that bar a little too low. So you can sign up to do either or both of those things in the lobby today on your way out. They've got some of the meal stuff set up there. You can see what it's like. You're going to be hearing a lot more about that in the next few weeks. But June 11th, join us, and we're going to be doing some meal packing. Also, on June 4th, the women's ministry is hosting a book swap, a chance for you to share one of your favorite books, a chance for you to maybe get a new favorite from another gal, and most importantly, a great way for you to meet and mingle with other women in the church. Now, listen, that's just for the gals. Guys, that's not for you to meet and mingle with the ladies in the church. Um, but you can mark that on your calendar if you're connected to a gal in the church to make sure you're watching the kids or you're giving her a night away. And so gals, show up. It's going to be a great night for you. Guys, we do have something for you on July 22nd, and then coming up again in August, we got a man up event, a place and a time for you to connect with some other guys in the church. It's going to be intentional and it's going to be fun. It's a great way for you to connect. Now, let me tell you, one of the things that has grown my faith the best over the years has been connecting with people who have more wisdom than me, leaning into their wisdom and learning from them. And now that I'm a guy who's got a little more salt and pepper in the beard, a little less hair than I once did, I'm finding that one of the best things to grow my faith is sharing the wisdom I've learned over the years with the guys who are coming behind me. And these women's events, these men's events are a great place for you younger ones to learn from those who've gone before you, from those of you who've journeyed a little bit longer to share the wisdom you've got with those coming behind you. Now, one more thing coming up I want to point your attention to is the follow your calling. Uh, on Sundays, meeting at 930, it's a group experience for three weeks in June. One of the things that we really value here at OCC is serving. Because we know serving is one of the ways God grows our faith. And so, uh, if you've participated in Rooted... All right, then you know the value of serving. It's one of the rhythms that's in the rooted uh, rhythm, right? But if you've heard of that, you've gone through that, and you're wondering, well, okay, where do I serve? Where do I best serve? Because all of us, no matter where we are on our journey with Jesus, that's a next step for us. Not just to take the initial step of serving, but to continually improve our serve. So how do we improve our serve? Well, some of the things you'll encounter during that three-week group experience on Sunday mornings is you'll learn of your spiritual giftedness. How has God wired you in particular with certain gifts and abilities to serve him in particular ways? Also, 
You'll take a personality assessment. You'll get to learn more about yourself that way. How has God wired you up specifically in your own personality? And then where does all that intersect? Your unique wiring, where does that intersect with the opportunities that God has placed in front of you for you to serve, for you to engage, to help make the church all that God has created her and called her to be? And so I really want to encourage you to participate in that this summer. All right. I'm not going to go through all this, but you'll hear more and more about those things as we move through the summer. Now, a few weeks ago, I had the privilege to travel down to Tampa, Florida to uh, meet with the management team of our newest church plant of Rue Church Tampa. It was a great experience. But both on my way down and on my way back home, I flew. And I mean, I didn't like fly. I was on a plane that flew me. It'd be really cool if I could fly. I'm just saying. But I jumped on that plane and big plane made of metal filled with tons of people. It was a packed plane down. It was a packed plane coming back. There's tons of people with luggage and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, that thing weighed several tons. And so we sit on that thing and it rockets down the runway and then lifts off into the air and flies. And I've done that several times in my life. And every time I fly, I'm amazed. I'm amazed because every time I throw a chunk of metal into the air, you know what happens? It comes down pretty quickly. Now, there have been other times in life too where I've been able to be on large boats, large ships made of metal, weighing several hundred tons that are floating in the water. And again, I'm amazed because whenever I throw a chunk of metal into the water, you know what happens? That's right. If No, just kidding. It sinks and quick. Right? So here I am on a plane that's not falling, on a boat that's not sinking. And I understand the physics behind it. I understand the physics behind planes and boats, what makes things fly, what makes things float. I get that. And I'm still amazed every time how God ordered his world with all those principles in play and how he allowed us to figure those things out. Now, People who know me really well will say, yeah, that's not a big deal. Fitz is amazed about everything. Fitz gets amazed about ice cream, like the process of making it, how stuff comes out of a cow and then it tastes that good frozen. Like, I don't, I mean, there's a process behind it and I get amazed and I get excited. Like I am easily impressed. I'm easily amazed. I get it. But part of that is my childlike faith that I try to cultivate because I'm just amazed at all God has done in this world. Friend, how about you? Are you easily impressed? Are you amazed? What are the things that amaze you? If you wonder, was Jesus ever amazed? Like, he kind of had a part in all that. Did he get amazed by anything? And if so, what was it that amazed Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us twice in the Gospels that Jesus was amazed. So we're going to take a look at what amazed Jesus today. The first encounter we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying all this, now let's pause right there. All this is referring to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' greatest sermon that we have recorded for us. And in that message, he recorded what life in the kingdom, his kingdom, is like. What being a kingdom person looks like. And so he gave us this beautiful, grand teaching. And then when he had finished saying that, he returned to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum had kind of become his home base. That was the town where his friend and follower, his friend and follower Peter was. So Jesus returned there frequently. And then we go on. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer, actually in the original language, he's a centurion. That was what Roman office he had. He was a 
Roman centurion, well, his, his slave was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. Now, Matthew records in his gospel this same event. But when Matthew records the event, he says that Jesus went, or that the centurion went to Jesus. Not that he sent people to Jesus. And skeptics of the Bible will often point things like that out and say, oh, look, a contradiction, an inconsistency. That's why we can't trust the Bible. It's, you know, we have these differences. Matthew says one thing, Luke says something else. We just can't trust it. These guys are, somebody's telling a fib. But friend, have you ever listened to the news or read a news article that said, today the President of the United States announced such and such? Ever seen one of those? Ever heard one of those? Now, did the president actually make the announcement? Yeah, kind of. What usually happens is the president says, I'm going to make some announcement about such and such. And so he has his speech writing team, a whole group of people, write the announcement, give that to the press secretary, who then stands in front of a room full of press people, and that person makes the announcement on the behalf of the president. So we don't say, well, the president's press secretary announced today. No, we just say the president announced. And we all know it to be so. Because it came from the president, even though it went through some different channels. It was the same way for this centurion encounter. If the centurion sent somebody to Jesus, if a Roman centurion sent his troops or people on his behalf to anyone, in that culture they would say, oh, the centurion went to that person. That centurion came to that person. That centurion said to that person. Because if you were acting on behalf of the centurion, you were his representative, and it was as good as he was there with you. So really when people are trying to point out these inconsistencies and these inaccuracies and the skeptics are taking a dig, actually, most of the time what they're pointing out It's their own ignorance and lack of understanding of the culture of that time, of how these Jewish people would have interacted with each other 2,000 years ago, how the Greek culture interacted with itself 2,000 years ago. Almost never is there an inaccuracy. Usually, it's a lack of understanding from the gap between then and now. Well, these Respected Jewish people came to Jesus and they begged him to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does. For he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. Now the rank of centurion was the highest rank you could attain in the Roman army without being born into wealth, without being born into status, without having the power handed to you. You had to raise through the ranks and earn this position. And a centurion oversaw about 80 to 100 troops, hence a century. And they would station these centuries of troops in strategic towns and cities across the Roman Empire for peacekeeping and to quickly mobilize in case of war. But you know, you get a bunch of soldiers together and it's peacetime. You got to occupy them with something else because something's going to break out. So to keep those men in shape, to keep them occupied and to help advance the kingdom, the empire, these men were often employed in building the infrastructure, building roadways, building markets, building temples, and sometimes doing things even for the local people. So this particular centurion must have had some sympathy, some interest in the Jewish religion because he helped them build a synagogue. He's done nice things for them. Now, the Jewish people, if you were to ask 
a Jewish person from 2,000 years ago, what they thought of the Romans, and especially the Roman soldiers, they would say, they're our enemy. We're praying for the Messiah to come. We want him to overthrow those people. And we have Jewish rule instead of Roman rule. And they're the enemies and they're bad. But here you have these Jewish people saying, this Roman guy is a good one. He even deserves our help. His slave is deserving of help. That is crazy talk from a Jewish person in the first century. And it's remarkable that they would think that way. So this centurion has demonstrated some kind of kindness to them that's won them over. Well, Jesus went with them. Now that short phrase actually tells us quite a bit. If you were to read the Sermon on the Mount and everything Jesus teaches for kingdom life in the Sermon on the Mount, you would see right here, he's practicing what he preaches. He's living it out. He's going to the Roman guy, the enemy. He's going the extra mile. He's turning the cheek. He's going to show compassion. He's crossing religious lines and ethnic lines and political lines and national lines. He's crossing all kinds of boundaries to demonstrate love and care for another person. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. So you just say the word, Jesus, from where you are, and my servant will be healed. For I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slave, do this, then they do it. Did you hear the humility of the centurion? Others say he is deserving of this healing for his slave. But he says, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence, Jesus. I'm not deserving of you. He recognizes that there's something special about Jesus. And he must have learned, as a wise centurion would, as he's stationed in an area, learned a little bit of the culture. He knew that for a Jewish person to step foot into a Gentile home would mean that that Jewish person had crossed and broken some religious boundaries. He would be ceremonially unclean. He would be defiled. So he's looking out for Jesus, saying, Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. But he's also looking up to Jesus, saying, Jesus, I'm not even worthy to have you come to my home. And he's spot on, because he's not worthy. He is not deserving of anything from Jesus, except judgment, except condemnation. And friend, neither are we, neither are you, neither am I. The only thing that centurion deserves, the only thing we deserve from God for our rebellion against him, what the Bible calls sin, is judgment and condemnation. Now I know it's not popular, it's not fashionable to talk about hell. It never has been, but we need to. Friend, you need to know that hell is real. And it's the very real place and the very real destination and the very real consequence of anyone who does not put their trust, their hope in Jesus, who does not put their faith in him. Hell is the only thing we deserve for our rebellion against God. Point blank. That's it. That's the most we deserve. But this is what makes God such a wonderful God. He offers us an out. He gives us an opportunity to get something much better. He offers us relationship with himself. He offers us grace. 
that amazing grace that we sing of from time to time. He offers us undeserved, unearned salvation through his son, Jesus. Pastor and author Tim Keller, just a few years ago, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And just a few days ago, lost his battle with cancer. But he won the battle of life. Several years ago, Keller had said this. Even if God never does another good thing for me, I already have more than I deserve in Jesus. Keller lived that out. He didn't just speak that. He showed that. When he received his cancer diagnosis, when he realized the cancer was going to take his life, he still lived this out. And Keller was one of my heroes. I didn't agree with everything he always said, but I loved the winsome way he loved Jesus and loved other people in Jesus' name and the way he taught so many to do the same. You know, friends, some people would say that Christianity is too narrow-minded, that it's too exclusive, that it's too restricting to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. But that's exactly what Jesus said on so many occasions. Jesus said he's the only way. In fact, at one point he said, no one comes to the Father, no one gets to heaven except through me. Those are Jesus' words. But Christianity is the only faith that does not depend on us. It's the only faith that it's not about what you do, but about what Jesus has already done for you, about what Jesus did at the cross, what Jesus did to conquer death and the grave when he rolled that stone away from the inside and walked out victorious over death and sin and the grave. Christianity is not about all the doing that we so often get caught up in. It's about recognizing what God has done for us. And that's where our faith resides. Christianity is the only faith where God sacrifices and dies for us. It's the only faith where God takes the punishment and gives us paradise. In fact, we really say it's the only true faith because the others are all religion. They're all based on us. The others all put faith in us, not in God. It's all about what we do and the system that we have to maintain. It's Every other religion in the world is an empty religious effort. Christianity stands opposed to him by saying it's not about all the religious effort. It's faith. It's faith, not religion. And Christianity is actually the most inclusive. It's a totally inclusive faith because Jesus welcomes everyone. Everyone, bar none. No exceptions. If you are willing to put your faith in Jesus, if you are willing to trust him, and if you are willing to follow him, you're in. That's it. That's the requirement. No matter your past, no matter your baggage, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've been, if you are willing to surrender to Jesus and follow him, you're in. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't expect some change on the backside because once you're in, then the Holy Spirit comes in and the Holy Spirit begins a transforming work in you. If there's been no transformation, I'm not sure you're really surrendered to Jesus. If there's been no change in your life, I'm not sure you're really following him. But it's not based on any class system or social hierarchy or anything like that. It's not about all the rules that we try to live up to. It is simply about humbling ourselves before God, acknowledging that God alone is God and we are not and that God makes a way better God than we have tried to. It's about following him and saying, God, I will follow you no matter what, regardless of what comes, 
trusting that you are enough, that you have the power, that you have the authority, and that you are for me and not against me. And I think the centurion understood this. He said, Jesus, you just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. Jesus, you just say the word. I I know what authority looks like in a military structure. I know what authority looks like in a social structure. Jesus, you have the total spiritual authority. You say the word, it's done. Jesus, you command it, it'll happen. And he believed him. At that, when Jesus heard this, Jesus was amazed. Jesus was amazed. I love that. Turning to the crown that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Jesus is amazed. And there's only two times we see recorded for us that Jesus was amazed. This time and then when Jesus visited his hometown. Jesus stopped by his hometown. Mark records it for us in his gospel. And the people scoffed at Jesus. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon. And his sisters live right here amongst us. Did you know that Jesus had sisters? Did you know that Jesus had brothers? Now he was the firstborn and obviously born in a very different way. Can you imagine trying to live up to the image of your older sibling when that sibling is Jesus? Can you imagine the counseling you need if you're the youngest in that family? Like, at this point, I'm just going to behave badly because there's no chance, right? Like, you just, I'm checking out. But they're like, oh, we know that family. Probably because some of them are like behaving badly because they're like, yeah, we got the Jesus thing going on, whatever. So they're like, we know the family he's from. We don't trust him. We don't trust this. Like, Jesus, get off your high horse. And they were deeply offended. They were offended at Jesus. And they refused to believe in him. And Jesus' response, he was amazed at their unbelief, at their lack of faith. Jesus was amazed at the lack of faith of the Jewish people who knew him best, of the religious insiders who had the most reason to put their faith in him, who should have had the most faith. And then he encounters the centurion a religious outsider, a Roman military Gentile who's never met Jesus and yet has tremendous faith in Jesus. See, we we see that Jesus is amazed twice. Two things that amaze Jesus. Great faith and lack of faith. Jesus looks at that centurion and says, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And you know, his, his guys, his followers, Pete and John and Andrew and the guys who are always like cheering him on like, yeah, you get it. Wait, what, what, Jesus, what, that includes, bro, we're your homies. That's in us. It's like, yeah, all Israel, the centurion, more faith. You know that his closest guys were like, oh, sting. Great faith and lack of faith. Faith always has an object. It's always anchored to something. So a lack of faith in Jesus means you've anchored your faith to something, someone else. That's always what it means. So friend, where's your faith? What is the object of your faith? What, what is your faith anchored in? What are you trusting in for your joy? What are you trusting in for your peace? What are you trusting for your eternity? Where is that anchor? 
Is your faith in Jesus? Or is it in how much you know? How religious you are? How obedient you are? How much good you do? How much bad stuff you avoid? How many bad people you don't interact with? Is your faith in Jesus or is your faith in your own goodness? Jesus always expected obedience from his people. That's part of it. He was just never amazed by it. Jesus expected his followers to learn and grow in knowledge. He was just never amazed by it. Knowledge and obedience are good things. They're not bad things. They should fuel our faith. But the challenge is the longer we journey with Jesus, sometimes those things that should fuel our faith can become the object of our faith. They begin to replace God and we begin to think that by all the obedience we've had, by all the learning we've acquired, that we we're somehow doing it on our own. Even if we don't say that, we have to stay on guard against that subtle shift. The enemy is so insidious. He wants to take the good things and get us to turn them into the most important things, which is one of the most damaging things that can happen to us. Obedience, knowledge, that's good. It should flow from faith and fuel faith, but not be a replacement. Are you trusting in your abilities? Trusting in your success and your accomplishments? How smart you are, how worldly wise you are, how worldly accomplished you are of all the things you've acclimated and acquired? Or are you trusting in God? Is your faith in the church? Going to the right church with the right beliefs that does things the right way about the right mission? Is your faith in a person? A religious leader? Maybe that mentoring person in your life who's had a significant influence on you? Is it in a preacher or teacher? I, I always appreciate those who have shown us the way to God. I've always appreciated men like Tim Keller. And again, I don't agree with everything Tim Keller said, but I've appreciated how he surrendered his life to point everybody to Jesus as he chased hard after Jesus himself. That's a kingdom loss. But my faith is not in Tim Keller or any other guy, any other leader, any other person. My faith is in Jesus. I'm always encouraged, humbled, Sometimes shocked when people tell me that my teaching resonates so deeply with them. And I know for some of you, like we're, we're on the same wavelength, we're wired up and in similar ways. And so preferentially, like it's going to land with some of you different than us. I know some of you are like, I go to OCC, Fitz isn't my favorite. That's okay. Like it's preference and, and that's all right. But I'm also always a little scared when some people say, yeah, man, like, because listen, there's no sage but Jesus. There's just a bunch of guides who might be a step or two ahead on the journey. And only the good guides are going to point you to Jesus. And so if you're following somebody and they're not pointing you to Jesus, stop following them. Don't ever make it about a person. As humbled as I am by some of that sometimes, never make it about a person. Unless it's the person of Jesus. Friend, is your faith in Jesus, is your faith in God, or is your faith in the outcome you want God to provide for you? 
You got something spinning in your world and you're hoping God shows up in a particular way and you'll follow him if. Right? When bad things happen, when things go differently than how we hoped, when things don't turn out the way we've been praying, when, when the outcome is not what we wanted, does that shake your faith? Does that shatter your faith? Does your faith depend on God doing what you think he should, doing what you want him to do, doing what you think he ought to do? Because if so, your faith is not in God. You want God to be your servant, not your Lord. Listen, true faith, true faith in God does not put contingencies on God. My brother and I joked several years ago when the Cubs were in the world. Listen, I'm a Cardinals fan, so I was like rooting against the Cubs. But at the same time, like I just felt bad for my brother and every other Cubs fan that year. But when they were going for the World Series, my brother at one point steps outside. He's like, God, I'll do whatever you want if you just let him win. I'm like, you know it doesn't work that way. He's like, shut up, I'm trying. You know, like... Because Cubs fans were willing to try anything to get that to happen. Um, but true faith does not say, God, I will trust you if you do this or do that. True faith says, God, I will trust you even if you don't. Even if no other good thing happens, I already have more than I deserve in Jesus. So I will follow you there. Faith says, God, I trust you regardless. See, friends, I've done too many funerals. I've sat by too many Hospital beds. I've counseled too many people in crisis to believe that God always does what we want or what we think he ought to or what we think he should. So we will not always understand what God is up to. We won't always like the outcome. We won't always be able to comprehend. So although we might not understand or like, true faith should be anchored in Jesus. Because a faith anchored in Jesus It's a faith of humility that says, God, I'll follow you. I'll trust you even if. I'll trust that your ways are higher than my ways, that your ways are better than my ways. I'll trust that I won't understand. As as a finite person, I can't understand an infinite God. God, I will follow you. I will trust you. I'll put my hope in you, even if I don't like the outcome. See, the difference between a faith that stands and one that shatters and is shaken is the difference between a faith that puts its hope in Jesus and one that puts its hope in outcomes. Well, Jesus, Jesus was amazed and then Jesus did something amazing. He did heal that centurion's servant and he did it from a distance, apparently just saying the word. And I got to believe that strengthened the faith of the centurion. I think it probably strengthened the faith of everybody else who saw it. The miracles of Jesus always point to Jesus as God and They should strengthen our faith. When we see them, when we hear of them, it should strengthen our faith. But our faith should not depend on miracles from God. So here's only one miracle we really need to depend on. It's what happened three days after the crucifixion of Jesus on a cross. When Jesus walked out of the grave, risen and reigning as Lord and Savior forever. Amen. So there's no contingency. God, I'll trust you if. There's no transaction we got to make. God, if you do this, then I'll do that. Listen, God's already done it. It's not about what God will do in the future. It's not about what you can do. It's what Jesus has already done. The transaction is there. God's like, listen, I came out of the grave. That's all you need. That's the only if you need. If Jesus raised from the dead, then you put your trust in him. If not, this is all a waste and you can just walk away. But we believe, I believe he did walk out of that grave alive. And if you do, then you put your trust in him. See, I believe that miracle, the healing of the servant, probably 
affirmed for the centurion that he had put his hope, his trust in the right place and the right person, but also that he'd put it in the right order. See, the centurion believed even before that miracle happened. Jesus, you just say the word, but even if you don't, I trust you to be who you say you are. See, an unshakable faith is a faith that is anchored in the person of Jesus no matter what. Church, we've all heard of amazing grace. We've all sang the song, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I once was blind, now I see. We've sung of the amazing grace of God. Grace given that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace undeserved, unearned. Grace freely offered to rebellious children. That God would die for us so that we could live with him and in him forever. And we know of amazing grace, but what of amazing faith? See, amazing faith is the response to such amazing grace. I, I believe God is most honored by a living act of faith. By a faith that says, Jesus, you just say the word and it can happen. I, I believe that amazing faith is the kind of faith that says, I'll follow even if. Even if not another good thing happens, I'll follow you. Even if the cancer seems to win, I know the grave is just a doorway to resurrection life. I'll follow you. So friend, do we have the kind of faith that would amaze Jesus? Do you? Do I? I hope so. I pray it's so. I aspire to that level of faith. Not just once, not just in the beginning of the journey, but every day. That even if I'm frustrated with life, even if I'm disappointed with the outcomes, even if I'm confused or I don't understand, even if I don't like the circumstance, I aspire to have the faith that says, God, I trust you because you're faithful, because I know what you're like, because I understand your love for me. And that's unshakable. See, that's the kind of faith Jesus invites us into every single day. So if you've never put your hope, your trust in Jesus, if you've never stepped out in faith, then we invite you to do that today. In a moment, we're going to stand and pray, and then we're going to sing with our voices loud, with our hands high. We're going to sing the praise of his grace in a faithful response to the faithful one. And as we do that, if you've never surrendered, we invite you to make your way. We'll have an elder on each side of the room. You come and we'd love to guide you through what it looks like to surrender in faith to Jesus. We also have a next step spot out in the lobby if you want to have a conversation out there after the service. And maybe you've placed your faith in Jesus. But over the days, over the years, over the decades, maybe your faith has become more about your performance than his grace. And if that's the case and you just need to turn that around, if you want somebody to pray over you, we'd love to pray for you. But friends, let's all of us make sure we examine ourselves every day to ensure that our faith is in him and in nothing else. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the faithful one, fully, completely, and always, that you 
love us with such ridiculous love that even though we don't deserve it, even when we were in full rebellion against you, you surrendered everything. You surrendered your life so that we might walk in a newness of life forever with you. Even when we were your enemies, you sought to make us your friends, to make us your children. So God, for any who who haven't crossed that, that threshold of faith into the newness of life you offer, I pray that today is their day. For those in the room or online, that they would just reach out and surrender to you. And God, for all of us who have, God, would you teach us to live with great faith in response to your amazing grace. Would you remind us daily that you are the faithful one, always and forever. Amen.